We are continuing on in the series in the book of Acts called Our Hearts Burn Within. And today we see that Christianity is disruptive, yet at the same time it brings order out of the chaos. It's, in fact, in our story today, it disrupts a whole city, yet it brings order out of chaos. When God created the world... Is a place where it said there, it was void, there was darkness, it was like chaos. And then when God spoke, life burst forth. And, and when that happens, here's what's going on. God's taking all the chaos of everything and he's ordering it so that life will come forth. And the word gospel means good news, joyful news, which means it must be spoken, which means the gospel at its essence is about words. Or about a word or the word, which means that when the gospel is spoken, it's like a new creation happening. And when that happens, because we've run off away from God, when, when the gospel is spoken, both to the Christian and the non-Christian, that is when life is put in us. For the Christian, it reorders our hearts, it reorders our loves, and makes us remember who God is. And for the person who's not a Christian, well, this is the stuff that brings life forevermore. And while the gospel brings life, what it also does that we find is it disrupts the whole city. And, and it's doing that because in our story, which we're going to get to, it rips idols from our hearts and from our culture. Now, the question if you've been here for the last month, you should be asking is, why do we keep talking about idols? And the answer is because we're following Paul and Paul keeps talking about idols. And in fact, what you should learn from that is that idolatry is a major theme that runs all throughout the Bible. And well, what's an idol? It's something you live for. And you're living for it because you think that this idol might bring order out of the chaos that's happening in your heart, the chaos that's happening in your life, and the chaos that's happening in our world. And you're using that idol because you think it's the solution, but the problem about idolatry or idols is they're tricksters. And they only bring chaos and death and destruction and ruin while the, Bible, while the, while the gospel brings life. So we're going to be in Acts 19. I'm going to jump around a little bit. We're going to do verses 8 through 10 then verse 20, and then verse 23 through 41. So I got quite a bit to read again. So stick with me. I believe in you. You can do this. And at the end, after the sermon is over, we're going to have a time for Q&A. There'll be a number up on the screen, and you could just text me any questions that you have. If that makes you nervous, like someone's going to ask a crazy question, well, I don't have to, I don't have to read it. So just ask whatever you'd like. All right, 8 through 10, then 20, and then 23 through 41. And he, this is Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. It's another name for Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, 
brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent, him, sent for him and urged him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand, wanting to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus... Who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when they had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. All right, first point. From order to idolatry. Now, Paul and his companions have entered into Ephesus, and they've been there for two years and they are preaching the gospel. Now, what this is interesting. What does the gospel do to this whole city? It disrupts their economy. It disrupts all of the commerce. So why does this happen? Well, all of the economy and commerce are closely connected to the Greek goddess Artemis, who is the goddess of fertility. And all throughout Asia would come there and worship her, and it caused the city to flourish and the economy to flourish. And there, this temple of Artemis, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And a meteorite, they called it a sacred stone, if you notice when I read it, but a meteorite had fallen from the area of Jupiter down. NASA even talks about it today. And they built this temple around it. The temple stood about 60 feet tall. It had 100 pillars, and the roof was made of marble. In Philo, when he spoke about it, he compared it to the, all the other seven wonders, and here's what he said. I have seen the walls and hanging gardens of ancient Babylon, the statue of Olympus Zeus and the high pyramids. But when I saw the temple at Ephesus rising to the clouds, all these other wonders were put in the shade. This grand temple 
has brought a lot of business to Ephesus. And Christianity is disrupting all of that. It, and it's the beginning of Artemis's popularity declining, and eventually she, she will be done, she, like toppled over. And Demetrius is a silversmith. He's kind of a leader of the city, and he sees the writing on the wall. He sees what's beginning to happen. So he causes this riot to form. There's shouting in the streets, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and this revolt breaks out, and Demetrius is trying to blame Christianity, but then the, the, the city clerk says, it's not the Christians, it's us. We're causing the problem here. All right, what does that mean for us? Well, because you're more sophisticated than that, right? Like You wouldn't create a goddess, fertility goddess and worship her right and and the answer is well maybe don't be so naive because maybe you're already doing it in fact I think that you are it, the only difference is we are covert about it while the Greeks were overt so the Greeks had gods for almost anything if you wanted something you create a god for it so if, if, if you want power you create a god for power and then you go and worship this god and then what happens is everybody knows what you're all about you are the person who is living for power, and it's known to all. If, since we're talking about Artemis, if everyone around you is getting married and having babies, and you can't seem to meet anybody, or you're not having babies, what do you do? Well, you go to Ephesus, and you worship Artemis, and everybody would know that is why you are there. So, they are completely overt about it, but Demetrius in this story, the silversmith, he's covert about it, just like us. Because what he worships is power and money and influence. And, well, he uses people who are desperate. And he uses them so he gets more power, more money and influence. And then Paul, Paul comes on the scene and he begins to disrupt all of this. And he says two things. Well, he says one thing and we can see two. First is that idols are completely powerless. Like they're not living things. They can't help you. They're dead things. Yet we see the amount of power these idols have over this entire city. These idols are running the city. So it's all disrupted. And well, let me say it this way. Whatever idol you have in your life, it's controlling you, and it has power over you. What are you living for? Whatever it is, it's controlling you. Now, because we're talking about Artemis in love, let's ask this question. Why would somebody make their lover or a lover the thing that they live for, the god or goddess of their life? It, it actually makes sense why we would do this, because here's what it is to be human. It means that your greatest fear is to be known, fully known, and rejected. And your greatest hope is to be known and fully loved. Especially if it's somebody special. So well, what do you do? Well, you find a lover and you elevate them as high up as you can elevate them. Why are you doing that? Well, if you find a lover and elevate them as high up as they can go to the status of God and they pick you, they marry you. You guys have babies together. You know what that means? 
You have worth. You have value in your mind because they picked you. The person that you put as high as it could possibly go in the place of God is saying, I love you and I choose you. And you say, I'm worthy. I'm loved. I've been picked. And what what now this has done is you've elevated someone to the place of God. And now what you're going to continue to do is to go to them to get from them what only God is able to give you. And your expectations of them will be so high that you will crush them or they will crush you. And because of it, this is the stuff that wrecks marriages. Right? Or here's the other scenario. You're so desperate for love and you haven't found it yet. So you settle for someone who is no good. And you do this because, well, you don't want to be alone. You don't want to be lonely. And it's all because you've elevated love or this idea of love to the place of God. Idols are powerful things that will wound you. They will trick you. And they overpromise and underdeliver. They bring wreckage in your life and they bring total chaos. And they will devour you. They lure you in with promises that never deliver, and then they devour you. And idolatry really is a shortcut. It's like a quick fix. I want you to think about a person who has just become a Christian. Not like a person that you know, but just imagine the scenario. Someone first becomes a Christian, and they come into the church, and they're growing a lot. And you're watching them grow, and you're thinking, wow, this is really amazing. God is doing some great things, and God has done some great things. But I want to tell you something. In Christianity, growth is typically slow. And whenever there's quick growth, not always, like this, the idea of revival means there's quick growth happening, but typically it's slow growth. And whenever you see fast growth, sometimes there's an idol connected to it. So if somebody who has this idol of approval, meaning they want everyone to love them and think they're amazing, and they have just become a Christian, and they've entered into this thing called the church, this new community, and everybody's living in some way like this. Well, we're here to bring the kingdom of God. Well, they want to be approved of. So what do they do? They fit in. They start doing all the things that are required to be seen as someone who's amazing. And then everybody's praising this person for being amazing, but it's about to become a problem. Because their fuel is coming from approval, and they're about to be empty. They're about to have nothing left, and they're going to crash. And you know, the church, the church today has this idol of success. So if a church who has this idol of success sees somebody come marching in like, I'm ready to help, and I'm ready to be loved. What do I need to do to be loved? Well, if you do all the things, you'll be loved. Okay, I will do everything you ask of me. I just want to be loved. And this is how burnout happens. It's not a good scenario. And the point of that is that there will always be something there. There will always be someone to use your idol for their gain. Demetrius, he's a demagogue. Meaning, he wants power. And to get it, he arouses the emotions, the passions, and the prejudices of the people around him in order to get power. He cares nothing for Artemis. He cares nothing for the people. He will use anybody to get the power that he wants. And here's what I want you to hear. There are people in your life 
who will use your idolatry for their gain. And they will take complete advantage of it. You think about politics is easy. So politicians want votes. And if they've gone very far, they're successful, they probably like to win. Because people who are successful like to win. So if they're going to win an election, how are they going to do it? Well, they're going to need to get your votes, and they're going to need to win you over. Well, how are they going to do that? How are they going to win you over, by the way? Well, you have idols. And if they could figure out what your idol is, well, they could tickle your ears. And they could lure you in. And they could win you over. It's it's so fascinating. If you look at what happened with Hitler, Hitler was very loved by a surprising number of good people. How did he do this? Well, he found out the wounds of the people. Wounds create a need for an idol. And when he found out their wounds, he spoke into them and he made some promises, uh, tapped into their idolatry, and he became incredibly loved. This can happen everywhere in your life. It can happen with a boss in your workplace, This can happen with your friends. This can happen with your spouse. And right now you're trying to figure out, how is my spouse manipulating me in my idolatry? And what I want to do right now is just flip it and make you ask this question, but how are you manipulating them? Because here's the thing, you have an idol. And you will use other people's idols to manipulate them so you can get what your idol is. So you see, we have a major problem here. And you can see how one idol could start taking control of an entire city. And that's exactly what happens. They're blind to how manipulated they are. And what happens in the city is when the gospel is preached, these idols are being dethroned. And it's causing major disruption. Because idolatry is the root cause of chaos. It's the sin under the sin. When Adam and Eve... When they fell, what they really did is just turn their backs on God to someone or something else. And it led to the loss of Eden, and it led to them being abandoned in a world filled with chaos. The gospel brings us back in, but the gospel will disrupt because the gospel is dismantling and dethroning all of these idols we have put on our heart. And what's happening is these idols feel threatened. And when they're threatened, it turns to chaos. And all it's doing is revealing, the gospel is revealing, putting light on the chaos that's already happening in our hearts. Okay, all right, all right. So our next point, reason and persuasion. When the idols are threatened, what do they do? The people start shouting out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Over and over and over again for like two hours, they're shouting this. There is no reason here. There is no persuasion going on. They're just shouting so loud that they can drown out the message of the gospel. Now, all throughout Acts, two words keep popping up. Reason and persuasion. In the last two chapters we read, eight times the words reasons and persuasions are mentioned. Why is that a big deal? Well, because the gospel is not shouted but it's whispered into our hearts through reason, reason and persuasion. Now, why? Why is the gospel simply whispered? Why isn't it reasonable and persuasive? Well, so if 
you understand this word reason. It's a reason for everything. It's like, what is something? Why is life the way that it is? How, does it, how is it all going to be fixed one day? And if you keep asking questions like this all of your life, eventually you're going to realize we're in a really big problem. And then you're going to hear words about Christ being spoken, and you're going to say, this is the most reasonable answer and the most reasonable solution to anything I've ever heard. He must be the way. And the gospel is persuasive because it's simply beautiful. Some people tell me, uh, David, I'm not good at sharing the gospel with people because I'm just not eloquent with my words. You don't have to be. The gospel itself is already beautiful. It's already wonderful, and it's breathtakingly true. It just has to be spoken. It has to just simply be whispered because beauty can shout in a whisper. So my question for you is, have you felt the beauty of the gospel? Like, have you been moved by it? Have you seen it and just been in so much wonder that you drop to your knees and have nothing else to do but worship God? Like the, like, the proof that you have encountered the beauty of God is you have joy that is filling up in you that has nowhere else to go except out into praise. Let me look at our next point, chaos to order. We had a series a couple years back called The Gospel. And the premise of this series is that the gospel is not like a diamond. It's not like a diamond, but it's like a whole diamond mine. And the idea is that inside of that diamond mine, there is one diamond, one part of the gospel that you will be most attracted to. You will be drawn in. You'll be, you'll be lured in by its beauty. Why are you lured in by it? Well, because you have wounds in your life. You've been hurt, you have pain, and there's one diamond in there that shines brighter than the rest, and it shines bright because that is the diamond that speaks right into your wound, right into your pain. Well, let me just tell a story to make sense of this. When I was in seminary, the professor was up in front of the class, and he asked, he was talking about eight promises of the gospel, and he says, which one is the best? And there's all this debate of what's the, what's the centerpiece of the gospel. And he asked this question. I'm like, ooh, we're going to see what happens. What's the center of the gospel? And when he asked what, what happened surprised me, almost everybody was saying something different. And then the person next to me said, adoption. Adoption is the best promise of the gospel, meaning we were orphans, we were lost, we were wandering the world without father or mother, naked, alone, and hungry. And then Christ comes as our big brother, and he goes to the cross, and he becomes an orphan in our place to lift us up to his father, so we have a home in heaven forever and always, and a father right now. And he said, the guy next to me said, that is the best part of the gospel. And the professor said, really? Better than glorification? Meaning better than we get, we get brought up into paradise with God forever in this eternal, never-ending, intoxicating joy forever. Better than that? And the guy next to me said, yes, adoption is better. And the professor said, can I ask you a question, a personal one? I'm like, at this point, we're all like leaning in. He said, yeah. He said, are you adopted? He was. 
that blew my mind. It told me everything I needed to know about the gospel. There is a diamond that is in that cave that is shining so bright. And each of you are going to see one shining differently, shining brighter than the others, because that's the one that is the balm that will heal you. And you're drawn in by it. You long for that diamond. This is like, you know, kintsugi? Kintsugi is this art form when a, a, some pottery breaks. You take gold and you put the pottery back together and it's stronger than it was before it broke. Well, Demetrius is a silversmith. And, he, and he's using idols to completely crush everyone around him. But Christ is the goldsmith that will put you back together. The golden balm is him and his beauty will draw you in. Whatever you live for, you will try to use it to heal your wound. And if it's not God, it's going to cause a greater infection. The beauty of Christ will draw you into him, will draw you into the diamond mine, and you will begin to be healed in your life. And what you're going to discover in the mine, the diamond mine, is that Christ is the word made flesh. Okay, so go all the way back to the beginning. Remember, God created by his word, spoken, and life burst forth. He ordered the chaos and brought life. If Christ is the word made flesh, then what that means is the word that created all things has now come and dwelt among us and within us and around us. He is the beauty that has come. The diamond is beautiful because he is beautiful. And he's come to spark life into us, to spark order into us, and to spark um, something beautiful in us and heal us. It's like he draws us in and then he zaps you and brings you to life, like lightning from heaven. Now, how do you hear him? He doesn't come shouting of his beauty and his glory. He comes and he whispers it. I mean, he, the Bible literally says he's veiling his glory. He humbles himself. He casts his glory aside. He's casting his beauty aside. And when he does this, he comes into our world. We cannot recognize him as God because he's veiled himself, hiding his beauty. And then he starts dismantling the idols of our world. And do you know what we did to him? We started shouting over him. You know what we shouted? Crucify him. Over and over and over again. No reason. We just knew that he was, he was disrupting everything. Chaos. Rioting. But if you were close to him, you would hear him say, It is finished. Meaning, everything that was necessary to accomplish your healing, he did right there on the cross. He is the golden balm that heals. And he is no idol that has been made by human hands because he descends down into death, into hell, but then he rises up. He's not put together by any human hands. He is God himself. And he goes to war with death and he rises up out of it to be with you forever. 
And if you have him and you live for him, he's going to continue to put you back together again until you are exactly who he made you to one day become. That's the good news. Leave everything behind. Stop living for something less than him and make him your life. Let's pray. Father, if we're honest, we we don't know how to do this very well. We don't know how to run from these idols that are controlling us. So we're going to ask you to help us. As painful as it is, we're going to ask you to rip these idols from our hearts, from our minds, from our city, from our culture, from our world. And when there's disruption in our life and in our heart, I pray that you would whisper into our hearts that still small voice of yours that says, it is finished. Let us be at rest from our idols that keep putting us on the hamster wheel. And let us just sit down at the table with you knowing that you're with us and we can bring you everything. Our pain, our problems, our sin. And just say, here I am, Jesus. This is, this is me. This is who I am. This is what I've got. And then when we lay it all on the table, Jesus, show us that you will care for us and love us well and heal us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to open up for some questions and um, see how this goes. I feel like I may have just brought you into a moment and you probably were not prepared for questions. So let's see if anybody gets any in. And if not, that's okay. You guys are going to do this to me. All right, maybe, maybe the band should come up. At least play some music in the background. Like, is it? Would it be Jeopardy music? Would that be? All right. Well, it's good to know that I have answered. What was your answer to the centerpiece of the gospel question from your professor? All right, so there's two for me, two promises, and it, 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 sometimes it changes, but there are two. They are propitiation and justification. I'm going to tell you what those mean. Propitiation means that all the judgment and the wrath, you're like, how is this your favorite, David? Well, I'll explain. All the judgment and the wrath that God has for all of our sins that's meant for us. Because look, God, God is righteous and he's just. He has to deal with sin. So here's how he deals with it. Christ becomes our propitiation, meaning he becomes the one who takes all the judgment that's meant for me and you. And he drinks up the cup on the cross of judgment. He did it all. And then justification means his perfectly righteous and beautiful record 
he takes it and he gives it to us. He gives it to me. This is why it's beautiful to me. And now when the father looks at me, when he looks at you, he looks at you with the same intensity of love that he has for his one and only firstborn son who lived perfectly, whom he is well pleased with. So for me, that's big. Now, when I talk about idolatry, my, probably my main idol is approval. So I want to be loved. I want people to think that I'm awesome, right? So justification comes along and says, the one who matters more than anything else, God, he thinks the world of you. Because the son died in your place and he gave you his record. And that moves me a lot. Um, so that's, that's mine. You can say amen. Thank you for your vulnerability, David. Wow. Um, how do we identify idols in our life and how do we put idols away? Ooh, this is a really good question. So I, I might actually do this. So I was thinking about this this week. I might actually send something to the discipleship group leaders that you guys could talk about in your discipleship groups that will help you identify your idols. Um, one thing to ask is, uh, like, what is a nightmare that you have? And a reoccurring nightmare, and then start asking, why are you having that nightmare? Now, that, that sounds weird. I'll just use an example f- from my perspective that will help you. So I used to have this reoccurring nightmare that I came up here, and I was completely unprepared, and, like, someone stole my sermon notes or something and played a joke on me, and I'm like, oh, I don't know what to say. And it would just, like, keep popping up. And so why is that happening? Well, I have this fear that I'm going to get up here because I have an approval idol you're not going to think I'm awesome because I'm not prepared. And so that became a nightmare. Um, so your nightmares will reveal a bit of your fears, and your fears will tell you what maybe you're living for. Um, oftentimes, um, mothers begin to live for their children. I mean, how could you not? But when you start loving them and the place where God is, then you start going them to, to, to get from them what only God can give you. And that's a recipe for disaster. Um, I, I talked about uh, with, with a lover, men will typically make their careers their idols. Um, maybe they make their career their idol to get some power or for approval or for control. But when we make our careers our idols, our idols of careers eat us alive because they don't care for you. They're just using you. You're like, well, my, my career pays me. Well, yeah, but like, if you're not careful, it will take your life. So watch out. All right. I think that's enough. Um, Let's stand up and sing. I'm going to pray for us one more time before we start singing. Uh, God, I pray that we would sing as people who are living for you, not for ourselves. Um, That we would know what it means to love you above all else. And that by doing that, we have more love in us to give others. Teach us how to do that. Um, Teach us to worship you and follow you in every way. And when we sin and we fall, bring us back. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, follow our social media at Grove Church PSL, and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.